All right, Frack family. Well, are you comfortable? Do you have your second cup of coffee? Are you ready to dig into the Word of God? Uh, now, don't get too used to this because, Lord willing, very soon we're going to be together again in our building and you can't be coming in your pajamas and you may only get one cup of Kaleo coffee. Uh, hopefully that day will come soon, but until then, we'll be thankful that we can continue to uh, study the Word of God together. So today we're starting uh, a short series on the Ascension and Pentecost, the, the things that happened after the resurrection of Christ. And I was, I was thinking as we wrapped up John last week, that gospel ends rather abruptly. We have the whole thing with Peter, and then John just kind of says, and Jesus did a lot more, and, and then that's it. He, he closed it out. And really, all of the gospels end in a similar manner. It's like everything was heading toward the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then after he's raised, the author just pretty much brings it to a close. And if you were reading it for the first time, if you're like me, it would provoke a question, now what? Now what? This man, this long-awaited Messiah, this man who did all the miracles, who died and rose again, and now the story's over? Now what? So let me ask you a question. If someone had read the gospel for the first time, and they came to you and said, what happened next? What's the next big deal? What would you say? And especially if they were saying, if they were asking, like, what's the really big event? What's the next big thing? How does this all end? Most of us would jump to the second coming of Jesus. And rightfully so, because that is how this is all going to end. But we sometimes have this sense that between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, there's not a lot going on for Jesus. We know that he sends out the disciples uh, to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and that Jesus ascends into heaven. But don't we sometimes kind of have this idea that Jesus goes and he, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father and he waits. And he waits. And he's just sitting there waiting. Waiting until his father says, Okay, son, it's time. Now go back down there and let's wrap this up. We know that's not true, but it's easy to kind of slip into that thought that Jesus is rather passive right now. That could not be further from the truth. Jesus is not passive. He's very active. And what happened after the resurrection is that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it was a big deal. It is his coronation. We didn't get to see it because we weren't alive yet. The disciples didn't get to see it. But as we trace the story in the scripture back to Daniel and some other places, Jesus ascended into heaven and he was crowned the king of the universe. And he's been reigning as king of the universe since then, and he reigns even today. Now, I want to talk about the ascension from the end of Luke's gospel. Let me just read a couple of verses for you. 
These are the last uh, few verses of Luke's gospel. It says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, led them, that's the disciples, out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now that's what Jesus did. Here's what the disciples did. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, if you remember from our study of John, this is a marked contrast from how they reacted when Jesus told them he was going to be leaving. Remember in the upper room, Jesus said, I'm going to leave, and they were disheartened. In fact, Jesus had to say twice, don't let your heart be troubled. It's good for you that I go. But now, now he actually goes up into the sky. He actually rises away from them, and they are filled with joy. And they go to Jerusalem and into the temple, and they are worshiping him. What happened? What's the difference? Well, as we saw in John, immediately after the resurrection, they were kind of stunned and they weren't sure what was going on. And Jesus appeared to them several times. But by this time, by the time that Jesus leaves, it seems like they have begun to understand some more things. And I believe, I'm, I'm convinced, the reason they are so filled with joy is because of two things. Number one, they understand now, Jesus said, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the spirit. And they don't know exactly all that that entails, I don't suppose. But they trust him, they believe him, and now they're waiting. But secondly, I'm convinced they understand that Jesus was going to his coronation. They got it. They understood that he was going to reign over heaven and earth. And that they would be subjects of the high king and be serving him and expanding his kingdom here on earth. And they were excited and they were filled with joy. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus went to the right hand of the Father and he has been reigning and ruling ever since. He's the king. This earth is his earth. Every square inch of it belongs to Jesus. He's not passive. He's very, very active. In the next couple of weeks, when we look at Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit was poured out and, and what that means for uh, the expansion of the church and the, the gospel ministry of the apostles, that's where we're going to go next week. But today I want to focus on the aspect of Christ's ascension from a little bit more of a mundane level. The, the kind of things that we may not think about so often when we think about Jesus reigning here and now. And I want to start with with Psalms chapter 8. This is a psalm that is familiar to most of us because several different musicians have put this to music. Psalm 8 is the one that begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is, all, is your name in all the earth, and it ends with the same refrain. And it's David, and, and I picture him kind of out on a, on a hill or a mountaintop, and he's looking out over vast creation, and he's just in awe that God has made him king, but not just him as an individual, 
but all of us as men and women, as humans, that he's given us rule. That's what he says. That's what he talks about. So I'm going to pick up in verse 3 of, of Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Again, this is all still talking about mankind. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I get the, the picture of David just marveling that God has entrusted his creation to human beings. Now he's no doubt looking out over that creation, but he's also very clearly uh, thinking about and pondering Genesis 1 and 2. Back in the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, after he had formed all the creatures, he made man and woman, and he said, here's my fundamental command to you as men and women. Two things. Reproduce, make more humans, make more of you, and rule. Rule and subdue. Take charge of this earth. Bring it under the domain of mankind. And that's what they did. So we miss this sometimes because what happens is immediately in chapter 3 we have the fall. So we've got chapter 1, the creation, and go rule and subdue. Chapter 2, we get kind of a zoomed-in view of that. God makes man and puts him in the garden, and he creates woman to come alongside and help him in the garden. And then in chapter 3, everything goes south because those humans rebelled against God's instructions. One instruction in particular. But let's not lose sight of the fact that the, the mandate is still there. Rule and subdue this earth. Take charge of it. And they did. So in chapter 4 of Genesis, we get the first two human beings that Adam and Eve reproduced, right? We've got Cain and Abel. It's not a very personal way to say it, but they did it. They made more humans, Cain and Abel. And again, we immediately are drawn to the story, the heart of the story, which is Cain's anger and jealousy, and he kills his brother. So immediately we see the first sin, uh, first murder, rather, after the first sin of Adam and Eve and so on. But what can get lost in all of that is they did continue to obey the mandate to rule and subdue. So think about it. Adam, we know, lived to be 930 years old. We don't know how old he was when Cain and Abel were born. But he, Adam is put on the scene here with these animals, and God says, cultivate the garden, take care of my earth, take, take charge here. How did Adam know how to raise corn? How did he know how to raise broccoli and tomatoes? How did he know how to shepherd sheep? 
maybe God just implanted in his brain how those things work, or maybe he spent his time learning how to take care of sheep and goats and corn. We know that by the time Cain and Abel are young men, one of them is skilled in raising crops and the other is skilled in tending the flocks. Presumably, Adam learned those things and passed it on to his sons. And on and on down the line, as more and more men and women were born, and they grew up and got married and had more children and raised families, they had to learn more skills. Again, we see this almost in passing in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain and Abel, and after uh, one of Cain's sons who follows in his father's footsteps in, in evil ways, we see infused along the way here in chapter 4 these words. Verse 20. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So the idea of being the father of those means he was the one who developed the technology, if you will, of sort of the, the nomadic farmer. He had crops and he began to realize if we all stay together here, we can't sustain our flock. We can't grow it. And there's becoming too much of us as, as other people have theirs. So we're going to create tents and we're going to travel around here and there and take our livestock with us. That was new. No one had done that before. His brother's name was Jubal. He, and this is one of my favorites, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Jubal. Conjures up words like Jubali, right? He was the first known guitar player. If you think of the lyre as the great-great-grandfather of, uh, of the guitar, he developed music. And I, uh, I don't know if we're going to see him in heaven, but I'm curious to know how he ever came up with the idea of the pipe. How, did he hollow out a, a piece of wood or a, a bone or something and just blow through it and think, oh, I can make... I can make music out of it. We don't know. But he created musical instruments, part of ruling and subduing this earth. And then it goes on. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. So now we have the first metal workers, so to speak. And what, is, what does this mean? Mankind is doing what God commanded them to do. They're reproducing and they're advancing what we would call technology. And they're learning how to do more and more things. This is what is happening as David is reflecting on all of the earth and all that God has given. He says, I'm amazed that you have entrusted all of this to us as humans. Now, the writer of Hebrews comes along, and he quotes Psalm 8, and he says, you know, actually, we do not yet see all of creation in subjection to man. And that's true. Uh, if you're out wandering in the, uh, in the mountains and you come across a bear, 
you're not likely to just issue it a command and say, hey, I'm your king. God commanded you to submit to me, so get out of the way. I mean, you can try that. And if, you, if it works for you, let me know. Well, uh, I'd love to hear that story. We're still a little timid when it comes to certain aspects of creation. Not everything is in subjection to us. But the Hebrew writer says, or the, the writer of Hebrews says, but we do see him, capital H, Jesus. All things are in submission to Jesus. We saw this when he commanded the wind to stop blowing. And when he healed bodies and just gave the command, when he gave the commands to demons, they had to respond. Because even though he had not been crowned king yet, he still had the authority to rule over the earth. After his resurrection and ascension, now he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has charged us as human beings to now bring this whole world under his rule. The creation mandate has never been revoked. Jesus did not show up and say, you know, all that stuff in Genesis 1 doesn't apply anymore. All I care about is the spiritual things. He didn't say that. Now we know the second Adam or the last Adam has come and he is taking charge of this earth through his people. And now we know why, why it matters that we subdue the earth, that we advance technology, that we grow in all the things he's entrusted to us. It is to give him first place. It's to worship and honor him, the high king. And that continues to this day. And that's what gives meaning and purpose to everything we are called to do as men and women. We're to bring the earth under his rule. So that means our jobs have great significance beyond just making a living. Whatever skills you have, whatever you're working to accomplish, that is part of ruling and subduing the earth. Uh, that can be what we think of as the most significant kinds of jobs, maybe uh, doctors, uh, rocket scientists, whatever. It can be what we tend to think of as less significant jobs, uh, maybe you're answering phones, you're being a receptionist or something. Are those really insignificant? Should we think of them that way? I don't think so. Whatever organization you're working for, whatever you're doing, your role in that organization is helping that organization rule and subdue the earth. It has value. And that covers the entire gamut of all that we do and all that we have to do. Uh, my son's been working landscaping. He did it last year, he's doing it again this year. That's a very tangible uh, way to des describe ruling as of doing the earth because you're actually physically working with the earth. I know Ben Fisk loves the idea that landscaping is sort of the, uh, the, the original call of man there. Uh, but to take a plot of land and shape it and form it and make it beautiful is part of exalting Christ with our skills and our abilities. I know some of you, uh, especially ladies, but some of the guys too on Facebook, I see every now and then some really great uh, displays of food. Now, I'm not a foodie, and I don't get as excited about that as 
some other people in my household who will remain nameless. Uh, some of the women, especially in my household, get really excited about food. And I maybe am not as, as concerned about it, its taste, but I do, I can see the value in the crafting of it, the, the, the presentation, I think it's called, of, of taking the time to really make this wonderful. I'm convinced that's part of this ruling and subduing the earth. It's, it's taking the stuff of life and making it beautiful or useful. It's cultivating as God called Adam to do in the garden. This is all part of being human and part of bringing this world under the rule of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's think about a, um, an, another topic that's on our minds a lot these days, government. Uh, the, the United States government is under the rule of Jesus. One of the titles given to Jesus is he's the king of kings. That means there are other kings, there's lots of them, but they all are under the, the rule, the, the authority of the high king, Jesus. So that means the United States government, for instance, is under the authority and the rule of Jesus and will give an account to him someday. But in a, in a government like ours, that has significant implications for us because there's a sense in which we are the rulers because we get to elect our officials. It's a representative government. It's a government of the people, right? That means we need to very seriously consider who we vote for. It matters, not just for our uh, American well-being, not just because we're patriots or some nationalism, but because we want to elect people who will govern in a way that pleases High King Jesus. So we have to vote. And we have to learn about the people that we're voting for. It matters. I've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of emails from folks who are very concerned about the lockdown and the quarantine uh, from this perspective, from the idea that our Constitution uh, allows freedom of worship and freedom of assembly and all those things, and, and this quarantine is a violation of those rights. And, and there's a case to be made there, for sure. Now, my intent now is not to get into that debate at all, but to simply say, I am thankful that we have people in our body who care about that. But I hope our concern is not first and foremost because of Americanism or patriotism or nationalism, that kind of thing, but because we are convinced that the Constitution is honoring to Jesus, and we want laws and the administration of those laws to honor Jesus. Is it pleasing to Jesus for a government to exercise tyranny over its people? The answer is no. Jesus said that. Don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over. Right? So we don't want a government that does that. I'm not making a comment on whether the lockdown is tyranny. I'm simply saying the fact that we care about that. The fact that we don't want a government that is oppressive, that's a good thing. We also should want a government that does not legalize the killing of babies, for instance. We should not want a government that takes excessive taxes. We should not want a government that thinks that it's God 
that is the provider and the caretaker for all of our needs. We shouldn't want that. And so we should vote accordingly. Again, not merely as Americans, but because the scripture tells us how King Jesus wants governments to act and what they should do. They have the sword. They are to punish evildoers and they are to commend those who do well, but they're not supposed to run our entire lives. This should matter to us because there's a higher authority and we want the lesser authority to honor the higher authority and we have a role to play in this government. It should be part of ruling and subduing the earth as Christians. So as we get closer to the political season as it comes and voting is not too far away, I just want to say along the side here, Christian, frack member, know who you're voting for, not just the president, but all the other places, and make sure that you're considering biblical principles in who you elect to these offices. It matters, and we have a, a role to play. You're going to be hearing more, uh, being hear more about this uh, down the road. Uh, we have Bob Frank is going to be teaching a class on politics here pretty soon in our Sunday seminars, and we're, uh, Eric and Dan and I are thinking about doing a short series dealing with something with politics before the election. But it should matter as part of our duty as human beings to see that our governments rule well, especially when we have something to say about it. One more thing on that. Do you think it's possible for Roe v. Wade to be overturned? I'll admit there was a part of my life when I didn't really understand, didn't really care about politics very much, and uh, just kind of lived my the rest of my life. As I get older, maybe, uh, I don't know exactly what the catalyst was, but I began to see the significance of uh, the government and the role of politics. And as I put these together, our re representative government, our republic, and Isaiah 9, for instance, that the kingdom of Jesus is going to continue to expand. Remember, we talked about this at Christmas time. The, uh, the, for unto us a child is born, and he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, and all that, and there will be no end to the increase of peace or of his government. If that's true, it makes me wonder, would not the increase of his government and peace mean we're getting rid of some of those heinous laws like legalized abortion? I've become an optimist when it comes to things like that. We have a job. We have a role to play in these kinds of things. And who knows? Maybe Jesus is going to say enough and he might say enough by bringing judgment on America. That's true. Or he might say enough and raise up government officials in the U.S. who will say, we're no longer going to do that. We are going to value life in the womb. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can he do it? He's the king of kings. He's in charge of the U.S. government. He can do it. May it be so. Let's pray to that end. So I'm obviously preaching, preaching to you again from my living room. That means we're still in the lockdown, still in the quarantine, and hopefully it'll only be a time or two until we can get back together again. And we miss the assembly. I miss the assembly. You get tired of just hearing from me. I want to hear from you. But let me ask you this question. 
Have you stopped being a Christian during the quarantine? Has the lockdown prevented us from being Christians? No. It's prevented the assembly, which again is a crucial part of what we love and what's important for us as Christians. But we still have the ability to rule and subdue the earth, to, to live for Jesus, to expand his kingdom even when we're forced to stay indoors more. We can do that. Uh, some of you have, your, your lives have not changed that much. I've heard from the, some of the mothers that life is not that different, especially if you have young children, you're homeschooling, for instance, or just, just raising the young children. Life is not that different from, from the uh, non-quarantine time. What you're doing with your children is pleasing to Jesus, and it's part of fulfilling what it means to be humans and to build his kingdom. And for those of us who we've had a little bit more time for some things, the extra reading, the, the extra learning, I've heard from people who've uh, read tons and tons and kind of given themselves a, a degree in something almost, who, who've really taken a topic or a skill and developed it. That's good. That's part of being humans and expanding the kingdom of Jesus, ruling and subduing the earth. And the extended time we have as families, all of that is good. We, we don't want to get the idea that our Christianity is primarily what happens for an hour or so on Sunday morning and maybe small groups and youth group and this kind of thing. Those are wonderful, but Jesus has not said, I claim Sunday morning. And the rest of your life, you're just surviving until I come back. It's not what he said. He said, all the earth is mine. The universe is mine. Every day and every second of every day is mine. And I'm building my kingdom and everything we do is to be lived to give him first place, to be lived for him and expanding his kingdom. That gives significance to everything we do. So I pray, I hope that as you go into this next week, that you'll remember Jesus is on his throne. He's active, not passive. And everything you and I do is part of him taking charge of this kingdom that the Father has given to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask now that you would take these truths and take them from our head to our heart and help us to understand that everything has significance because you are on the throne. Help us to not be afraid. Help us to not be lazy. Help us to live lives that are intentional about exalting you in the most mundane things. And I ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen.